the president has engaged in abuse of power, undermining our national security and jeopardizing the integrity of our elections. His actions are in defiance of the vision of our founders and the oath of office that he takes to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. On this episode, we're going to talk about three things. Uh, I'm going to have a main segment on impeachment developments, and then two smaller segments, one on Airbnb short-term rental regulations, specifically uh, some debates happening right now in Arizona. And then we have a listener question about uh, the bond rating that Arizona just just changed and talk about bond and, and debt in Arizona government and maybe touch on some, some national government debt issues as well. So let's start with uh, impeachment. You just wrote, wrote a column uh, basically saying if this sorry, uh, sorry performances on both sides and, and reflecting on how it, it's, a, it's a sad reflection on the quality of politicians we have right now uh, in terms of the debates on back and forth. So, and, and, I, and I understand that, and I, I, I see that Democrats may be playing to a political calendar, maybe rushing it uh, to get ahead of, of the election, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's perceived as a partisan play. And then I see Republicans basically seem like they're just kicking up dirt in the air to make the, the air so dusty and cloudy that, that no one really can, can see anything and nothing seems clear. Republicans say this is just the latest attempt at impeachment that Democrats have been trying to impeach from day one. Uh, they call, and you also call the, the Mueller report or the Mueller investigation a witch hunt. Um, but, I mean, there was a lot of disturbing things that came out of the Mueller report about uh, Trump's behavior. And, and, and Pelosi wasn't moving on impeachment. The, the Democrats weren't moving on a formal impeachment process before. Uh, Maybe some Democrats have been talking about impeachment and, and, and wanting impeachment for a long time, but this is for a president who arguably wasn't fit for office in the first place, and everyone knew it, including Republicans like Lindsey Graham, who are saying it out loud in 2016 that Trump was not, not fit uh, to, to be president of the United States. And now everyone's, everyone's defending him tooth and nail. Uh, another argument that Republicans are making is that you can't, you can't uh, thwart the will of the people, that we have a duly elected president, and to impeach this president would be overturning an election and thwarting the will of the people. But the most recent time we've had a national election, uh, the people empowered Democrats in, in the House of Representatives right now, uh, and they're fulfilling their constitutional responsibility, as they would say it, uh, of, of holding a president accountable. And one more point about the will of the people, that the framers of the Constitution didn't, didn't see the you know, will of the people as like a supreme thing. They, they guarded, there was guards against uh, presidents uh, coming into office by, by demagoguing and, and, and stirring up the passions of the people. So we had uh, checks like 
the Electoral College that originally wasn't supposed to be uh, directly uh, from the will of the people, and the impeachment process is built in specifically to to guard against if a president is uh, abusing the power and knowing that that president would have been duly elected, but if they if they violate their oath of office, then uh, it's the responsibility of the legislative branch to to check that and remove uh, a president. And, and one Republican who has stayed, well, he's not a Republican anymore, Justin Amash, uh, <laughs> He, he, he was a Republican, but now he's an independent. Uh, I, I, I see him as someone who's one of the only ones maybe who stayed uh, intellectually honest and consistent throughout, you know, from Obama's presidency to, to now. And uh, he, 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 he frames the, the impeachment thing this way, and I'm, I'm interested in your response to this, because in your column you talk about how uh, Democrats, because they've rushed it, and because they haven't fully gotten the evidence that would prove the conditional part of it, uh, the quid pro quo part of it, that that is kind of a half-baked thing and they should go through the court system to get to compel that evidence. What Amash is saying is that he's he's basically saying, look, the there, there's two parts to this impeachment process. There's the House bringing the charges. He's, he relates it to like bringing an indictment. And then it's the Senate is the one that actually does the trial and compels witnesses like that to actually come up with a, you know, a verdict on it. So, so his argument is we have enough probable cause to bring formal charges of abuse of power, of uh, obstruction of justice, and obstruction of, of Congress. And that then it would be the Senate's job to then evaluate that evidence, call the witnesses, and actually have the trial. Uh, what's your response to that? The, that analogy that Amash is making is that the proper way to look at uh, impeachable offenses and, and the and the role of the House and the Senate in this situation? Um, I, I I do not think uh, that there has been probable cause established um, for either. Uh, the notion that the president personally conditioned uh, aid and a meeting uh, to Ukraine conducting an investigation into the 2016 election and more particularly um, the activities of Joe Biden and his son. Uh, and certainly not probable cause to believe that he's obstructed the impeachment uh, proceedings. What is indisputable, in part because Trump not only says it happens, but brags about it and calls it perfect, is that he asked the Ukrainian government to open up an investigation uh, against uh, Joe Biden and his son, even though those two were not under investigation by the U.S. government. This wasn't a request for cooperation with an ongoing investigation of the U.S. government. And he asked that coordination of that be done uh, through his personal attorney, um, Rudy Giuliani, not the officials of the U.S. government. That is an abuse of his power as president. If the House Democrats wanted to say that is sufficient uh, abuse to warrant our political judgment of impeachment, 
then I would say there's plenty of evidence for that. Uh, but, and this is part of the problem with the partisan nature of these proceedings, focus groups tell them that that's insufficient, that they've got to be able to call it bribery or extortion. And so what the House Intelligence Committee identified as the potential impeachable offense uh, was that the president personally conditioned aid and a meeting on these investigations taking, taking place. I believe it is likely, highly likely that that occurred. Certainly the U.S. government officials that were responsible for managing Ukrainian uh, affairs concluded that that was the case and acted accordingly. Um, but there's only been one witness that actually says that he spoke to the president uh, about the investigations. That's the UN I mean the uh, European Union ambassador Gordon Sunland. And he spoke only fleetingly, uh, and he's proven to be an unreliable witness. He's changed his story. Uh, there are two people who would be able to provide firsthand knowledge as to what the president said and did. That's Rudy Giuliani, through whom Trump decided to act, and Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, whom Trump ordered to withhold the aid. Um, compelling their testimony would take time, and the, and the Democrats are hell-bent on getting this thing done before Christmas because they don't want to have to deal with it after the election. Uh, but you can't establish conditionality based upon what's currently on the record. You've, you've, you've got to talk. If you're going to say the president personally did that, you've got to talk to the people with whom the president personally interacted. With respect to obstruction of justice, it's even worse. Um, the uh, House Democrats issued these subpoenas. Trump said, ignore them. Uh, and that's where it was left. Uh, well, the degree to which Congress can compel the testimony and the work product of close advisors to the president is uncharted legal territory. Uh, and uh, rather than fight it out in court and to find out whether they do have the power. And I actually think in an impeachment proceeding, they probably mm -hmm. do or should. Uh, they simply said, oh, we got to get it done by Christmas. We don't have time to do that. Uh, so we're uh, just going to go with what we can get. Well, that's fine. Make that political judgment. I fault it because you haven't completed the record. But you can't charge the president with an impeachable offense of um, obstructing the impeachment inquiry uh, for asserting his side of a gray legal area. Uh -huh. that, that's just not right. So I disagree with Amish as to what the record shows. Now, I think the right thing to have done was to not say we got to get this done on a political schedule, but to go ahead and complete the record. Uh, and at a minimum, um, that would give the American people, a fuller understanding of the events in Ukraine to evaluate in uh, 2020 uh, election. It might be too close for impeachment prior to that, but it would have been better to complete the record rather than proceed according to a political schedule with not a fully developed 
um, impeachment charge. The problem with the timing of of this, and I think another problem with some of the re- Republican de- defending uh, points here, you know, they're saying, well, just let let the people decide, right? Let's let this election decide the situation. Or um, if you're if you're Democrats, uh, the problem with waiting and and compelling that through the courts is that the accusation is using a foreign government to help himself to, that that Trump used a foreign government to help himself out personally with uh with this election and 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 something that would basically interfere with this upcoming election so um well then charge, shouldn't so shouldn't charge him with that don't charge him so that's, that's with, with yeah. bribery or or extortion if 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 they believe that is sufficient what trump has already confessed to do uh-huh. right, and and brags about it i I, yeah, I asked the Ukrainian government to investigate the Bidens. Uh-huh. It's perfect. If they want to say that that is per se an abuse of power of sufficient gravity to warrant impeachment, then proceed on that basis. Right. There is a full record on that. Yeah. But if you go the next step and use and, conditionality. And, 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 and to say the president conditioned military aid in a meeting on... Uh, those investigations taking place, the record is insufficient to support that charge. So, so for, so for, so you would, now, you now would I, I think he probably did. Yeah. Um, but until we talk, until we hear the testimony of Rudy Giuliani and Mick Mavaney, um, we don't know what the president said and did. And during the Nixon investigation, Howard Baker had a famous um, uh, saying. Uh, that guided the whole inquiry. What did the president know and when did he know it? Well, here the question needs to be, what did the president say and do and when did he say and do it? And House Democrats have not developed the answer to that question. Couldn't the, couldn't those testimonies, though, be uh, compelled in the Senate trial? I mean, the Senate trial it's presided over by the, the chief justice of the Supreme Court. So couldn't it be, hey, we're, we're uh, based on our, everything we, we've got, we're bringing these charges, including conditionality, which maybe is not necessary. Maybe uh, you can't know that until you compel that testimony. But what if they bring the impeachment charge, which they say they're going to do probably this week, the articles of impeachment, and vote on it. And then once it moves to the Senate, and they do the trial, wouldn't they then call up Mick Mulvaney and uh, Giuliani and have and, and compel them then in the Senate trial to, to testify and get that evidence that that you think is there? It That may or may not happen, uh, but I think it is a dereliction of the House Democrats' constitutional obligation to develop articles of impeachment about what they think the president did rather than what they know he did. So I, I don't think we want to get into the position where on a rush political ca- calendar, you have not fully developed impeachment charges that get tossed over to the Senate and say, okay, you guys figure out what actually happened here. The judgment of the Senate is more whether... What was done 
passes the political threshold of saying, we're going to remove you from office. It is the House that's supposed to develop the charges, and it should be based upon what they know, not based upon what they think. And then the Senate decides, mm -hmm. does that cross a threshold that we decide based upon our political judgment that this behavior warrants removing the president from office? The House has not done its... If it, if it does articles of impeachment other than the guy abused his office by asking a foreign government to investigate a political rival when there was no U.S. investigation underway. If it goes beyond that, the House has not done its constitutional job, in my judgment, uh, with respect to formulating charges to present to the Senate. And that's, uh, and that's in line with a, a, an ordinary... The, the analogy that Amash is using is that in an ordinary criminal... If, if you're bringing charges, uh, you need probable cause. And, but you're saying that even though from what you've seen, you think that he most likely did that, you're saying what we have now in terms of the testimony people is not probable cause to bring the well, conditionality articles in, in, I, in the... I disagree with making the impeachment process analogous to a criminal prosecution. And, and why not? It, 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 it's a political judgment. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's not a criminal court proceeding. So um, I believe that charges should be based, that the job of the House is to decide, determine what the president did and present that to the Senate, which then decides whether that is sufficiently efficient okay. to warrant the removal from office. But even if you use the probable cause standard, um, I don't think that the two charges that they are considering um, have been demonstrated. I mean, you, you've, you've, got, you've got the conclusion uh, that uh, U.S. officials responsible uh, for um, handling our relationships with Ukraine formed and the only hard evidence you have is the little bit of interaction that Sunlin had uh, with the president, and he's proven unreliable. So what's the probable cause? The fact that these people reached a conclusion? Um, no, you, you, you don't have sufficient probable cause for that. And you certainly don't have sufficient probable cause in terms of impeding uh, the impeachment inquiry. You would have needed to have litigated it, won it, and have the president refuse to obey a court order. Mm -hmm. That's not happened. It's not even close to having happened. The House gave up on enforcing its investigative uh, authority. Yeah, and one of the problems, perhaps, is that we don't have a lot of examples. You know, all the, all the arguments about what's the role of the House, what's the role of the Senate, you know, when do these, is it like, a, should it be run like a criminal trial? Should it, uh, even people, even people saying maybe it's not, it shouldn't be really a criminal trial are saying, uh, you can't bring impeachment charges because there's no underlying crime. <laughs> but then well, the, that, the yeah, founder that's, said that's, there doesn't have to be a crime. Yeah, that's, that's clearly wrong. I mean, and, the, the, the best. And, and so, so I guess, uh, we've only gone through this, I think four times in all of, all of us history, um, 
would you, what do you think the founders sort of uh, envisioned about that? Do you think that they thought it might happen more often uh, and that, or do you think the, fa- the fact that we've gone this long without ever having gone through the whole process of, of impeaching and removing a president, you know, is it just a safeguard? Should it be used more frequently? What do you think the founders would the, have, the, in, have intended this process to be like? The, the, the best guidance that we have is what Hamilton wrote about the impeachment clause in the Federalist Papers. And he says that it's a political judgment. Um, and so it's not, you don't have to prove a crime. It's, it's basically for abuse of the position of such sufficient gravity and consensus uh, that two-thirds, the majority of the House decides to impeach, and two-thirds of the Senate decides to convict and remove. Hamilton was clear that it should be used sparingly, that, that there was a danger that the power would be used by the opposition uh, faction. We didn't have parties at that particular point in time, but the opposition faction uh, would uh, use it to try to reverse political outcomes. Um, and so there was, there was a warning about uh, the misuse of it um, and uh, making it partisan. And so I, it, it was intended to be used sparingly. It's not a criminal proceeding. It is ultimately a political judgment about abuse of power, uh, dereliction of duty. How do you think? Last question on impeachment stuff is well, we, we, we've let the Republicans well, off the hook. <laughs> well, <laughs> although you did in your introduction, you hit them pretty hard and heavy. And I, I suggest add that that their defense of the president is pathetic, uh, and uh, they are attempting to defend the indefensible. Uh, and uh, their performance on this is just as sorry as that as the Democrats. How do you, I mean? To me, it's just frustrating, and I. It should. I, be. I think. I think a lot of people, uh, particularly for a person of your generation, yeah. this this should be highly frustrating, and it's it it has the risk of being highly disillusioning. Yes, and and listening even to other like professional podcasts, like professional <laughs> journalists and people following this are saying, "I'm exhausted by this," and and it's it's. And, and, and Republican defenders of the president would probably listen to that and be like, "Good, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to we're trying to make this just a a, a food fight." And so everyone's just exhausted. They don't care. It's like, well, whatever. You can't really know the truth, and that is so dangerous, I think, and and frustrating. And um, you know, so it's not like for me personally, I haven't been tuned in as closely. Uh, partly because of, uh, you know, being busy with teaching and coaching basketball now and, you know, wanting to follow the Suns and things like that, just live my life. But then um, it's not that I don't, like, care about it. I care about it a lot. But it's that it's just, you know, not much has changed in terms of factually from our last podcast a month and a half ago on impeachment when the first reports came out about uh, what what Trump uh, did in terms of just the basic – uh, trying to get trying to get a foreign country to open up an investigation to hurt his opponent. I mean, that's to me that was just like, okay, there it is, right there. And and uh, it was it was kind of like, well, what are you waiting for? And now they're trying to develop all these 
So I, I resonate. I, I resonate with what you said too with your column about the you know the Democrats sort of uh, playing it in a partisan way. But I think my my deepest frustration and um, just disgust is with the entire Republican uh, establishment defending it. I mean, even today, uh, recording this on a, on a Sunday, uh, Ted Cruz is all over the talk shows, uh, just basically going over the top and and in defense. And you look at that and you say, you know, where's, where's the line? Where's the line of, you know, having, (laughs) having, having dignity for your, for yourself and, 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 and your country versus just, um, following, following along to, to throw mud against the wall for, I don't know what reason to, to be better off in in an election in the, in the following years, you know, there should be a consensus that what the president did in asking a foreign government to investigate a political rival who was not under investigation by the U.S. government and to work through his personal attorney uh, in coordinating that investigation is wrong. So the question is, is it sufficiently wrong to warrant ousting the guy from office? That should be the discussion, and 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 I think there is a case to be made uh, that no, um, that uh, particularly this close to the election, that uh, a censor or a statement of disapproval or just laying the record out, including getting the testimony of uh, Giuliani, getting the testimony of Mulvaney, um, uh, but um, I think. There also could be an argument that even as a one-off, um, that's a sufficiently grave offense to withholding. But that's what we should be discussing. Right. Not not trying because of focus groups to increase the severity of the charges. Not claiming obstruction of justice when you haven't attempted to get your subpoenas enforced in court, and not coming up with fairy tales about alternative reasons why Trump did what he did, which is what Republicans are coming up with. It, yeah. it, it is disappointing and can be disillusioning. Yeah. Well, what about the uh, just the politics of it moving forward? I mean, um, how do you think this is? How do you think this whole thing is playing to? You know, voters leading into Dem- you know the Democratic primary for for president, and then moving into the the twenty twenty elections. Let's say what the most likely scenario is: they bring impeachment charges, or, or they bring articles, they vote on them, yes, and then in the Senate, it doesn't quite they don't quite get enough votes to to remove the president. Uh, how does that play out? Do you think for the for the electorate does that? Um, are people going to be more sympathetic to Democrats or Republicans, or how do you think this is going to play out politically? I, I think your description of it as a food fight is exactly correct, and it's in part because the Democrats have overreached and rushed, and it's in part because uh, the Republicans are denying reality about what the president did and why it's wrong. Um, but um, because of those two factors... It simply fits within the food fight uh, that's 
um, existed from the time that this, uh, w- from the time that Trump became a candidate, and and um, I think it will continue to be viewed that way. It will sharpen partisan edges uh, without creating any particular movement in um, in the center, um, and it and it leads to a poisoned. 2020 election that will be about the intense political feelings that Trump generates, uh, both among supporters and opponents, uh, and paralyzes thoughtful deliberations either about his behavior or about the future of the country. I, I, I think we're headed for a very dispiriting 2020 election. Does it? Do you think it favors either side? They just kind of cancel each other. Let's say, like in a Senate, the you know McSally versus uh, Kelly in the in the Arizona U.S. race for U.S. Senate. I think it's we can't tell yet. Um, two things I think will determine that. One is how does the Senate conduct um, its trial? Uh, there some speculation that it will be just pro forma, bring these up, we're obligated to deal with them, let's vote, they didn't get the votes, okay, let's move on. There is also a thought that the, <laughs> and this is what Trump wants, uh, that the Senate will have a full-blown trial um, uh, to bring out sort of the Republican side of the story, bring the Bidens uh, into it uh, more than they uh, already are, uh, to try to say that the president had legitimate concerns about Ukrainian attempts to discredit Paul Manafort um, and to drag this out and provide a greater voice to the Republicans' perspective since the Democrats sort of controlled the storyline uh, in the House, and to tie up the Democratic senators yeah. who are uh, running for president um, from uh, the early primaries. So uh, how will the Senate conduct the trial? How will that play with the public? Does it look like the Republicans now playing games the way the Democrats did or does it increase the extent to which weight is given to the Republican position? It's, you just, it's, it's difficult at this point in time to try to figure all that out. And then the second thing is what happens after that until the election? Um, at, to what extent will Trump fatigue set in? where it really doesn't matter who the Democratic candidate is, it doesn't matter what the Democratic candidate's platform is, People just don't want to go through this for another right. four years. And uh, until we see how Trump behaves, how the elect- electoral landscape evolves, you don't know. Um, the only thing I think we can know is that it's going to be unpleasant and dispiriting. What advice would you give to listeners or people that do feel disillusioned, they do feel, you know, just frustrated, cynical, how do you, how would you just uh, 
advise someone to to that it that it still matters or that how do you, how do you respond to that the the electorate or the just the American in, people in the age of Trump I have difficulty responding to it um, but the concluding line of my column was and the age of Trump seems to bring out the worst in everybody um, but one of the good things about our democracy is circulating political leadership. There will be a day, yeah. either soon or four years later, that Trump is not president. And I do believe that he is uniquely responsible and capable of turning up the heat on politics across the board the way that we have it now. Um, it may be that there are permanent changes to the Republican Party or permanent alienation between the Republican Party and younger voters. There may be consequences of Trump that, that survive Trump. But the intensity of our politics, and I, I think are uniquely attributable to Trump, his ability to command the agenda, and his, his ability to animate um, both supporters and, and detractors. I think they're unique to him. So I do believe that this, this period of dispiriting politics will ultimately pass when Trump passes from the scene. Well, speaking of in intensity and uh, the situation in this podcast, uh, before we talk about some Arizona issues, let's take a short break. So let's talk about a couple Arizona issues here briefly. Uh, first, Airbnb and, sh and short-term rentals, and then second, about uh, a bond rating here in Arizona. So the, the issue of the short-term rentals is that there, there can be issues, neighbor issues. with If you, if you move into a, a house and the, and the house next door to you has a, is, a, is a party house that's got Airbnb guests coming in and not really respecting the neighborhood, that, that can be a problem for neighbors. Um, and there's kind of competing ways to, to address this. Uh, Arizona Governor Doug Ducey uh, prefers a, a statewide regulation so that it's that it's the same no matter where you go in Arizona it's the same policy that whether it's allowed or not allowed it should be set by the state that way it's consistent and it and it encourages um, I guess economic development uh, the the contrasting view to that uh, there was a column in in the Arizona Republic uh, last week by Abe Kwok arguing that instead of the state regulating it, it should be an inherently local and municipal government responsibility because there are so many different circumstances in the different cities. Um, in Sedona, for example, there are problems with um, local local people finding affordable housing because people are, and big companies are now coming in, buying up big, you know, buying up several properties and then it's using those for rentals, which drives up the, the rates and then different cities have different problems. So uh, where do you stand on this? Do we need a state? 
what should the regulation be, first of all, and that should that be set by the state as a whole or just local governments? Well, to paraphrase an old um, political adage, I have friends that support um, state control, and I have friends that support local control, and I stand with my friends. <laughs> I, I, I think you can achieve a balance here. Um, local governments tend to be hostile for whatever reason to what's known as the sharing economy, Lyft, Uber, Airbnb, where individuals can take surplus capacity uh, and turn it into income for themselves. Um, and so I do believe that there needs to be some state control which ensures that local government doesn't, in essence, uh, put Airbnb or comparable organizations out of business and deny people that opportunity. Um, however, um, in residential neighborhoods or even in apartment complexes or condos, um, you shouldn't have to live next to a party house. Uh, and local governments are better able uh, to regulate that level of behavior to ensure comedy among uh, property owners. Uh, and I think if you've got people who are in the business of buying these houses and engaged in short-term rentals, there's an argument to be made for a different category of regulation and oversight uh, than um, the guy who renovates his a, 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 a bedroom, creates a separate entrance, but he's living in the main house and is just looking to supplement income. Those are two different activities. Um, so I, I, I do believe you do need state control, but I believe you can provide a greater degree of local capacity to regulate the consequences of these things and uh, try to... Um, ensure that people don't have to live next to party houses. So, so kind of like the state setting sort of the broad guidelines and, and ensuring that you're allowed to do this within local, uh, local government setting, like the specifics and, and, I, uh, and, and yeah, holding I, people accountable? I think at the state level there may be the need to establish a different category um, for – commercial operations where people are buying large number of properties and turning them into short-term rentals, that maybe there needs to be some way to separate that and subject them to a higher degree of regulation than just the guy um, renting out a, a bedroom in, in his house. Um, and then an exception to the state preemption law uh, that allows municipalities to regulate behavior, basically, that occurs in these uh, and subject fines and perhaps make complaints to the state about if it's one of these large commercial enterprises uh, jerking their license to, to perform it. I believe that there is a way to create, to achieve a balance here that doesn't give all the authority to the state and all the authority to, or all the authority to local government. And also to ensure that people can rent out their space as they want and, and make supplemental income. We, we ought to be able to come up with a regulatory structure that ensures two things, that, that people can participate in the sharing economy if they want and that no one has to live next to a party house. All right, last uh, 
last question here is about the bond rating. Arizona recently had a had a lower bond rating and it got raised to a to a higher bond rating. Um, listener question is why should anyone other than big donors and investors care about our bond rating? In other words, what does this matter to the regular guy? Um two things. Uh, it, it, the, the higher your bond rating, uh, the lower your borrowing costs and therefore the cost to taxpayers. Um, with the uh, change that was made, that effect is going to be relatively modest. But the higher your bond rating, the less your borrowing costs, the less the cost of developing infrastructure uh, to the taxpayer. But secondly, uh, it is an outsider's judgment about the fiscal health of state government. So instead of having to rely on what the governor has to say or what the governor's critics have to say, uh, these are um, outside experts uh, who are trying to tell investors how risky an investment is that looks at the state's finances and renders a judgment about them. And uh, that outside judgment is that there's been an improvement in the state of state finances. So that's sort of an, an independent outside validation of um, what's going on that should inform people's conclusions about what's going on. So it's a way to kind of objectively uh, assess that we're, we're better off in terms of financial health. Will it... Uh, will it affect how much we have to pay in taxes in terms of like if it's if it's less expensive to borrow money you'd have to you could you could you could put le put less of a burden on people's paychecks yeah it 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 will it will modestly uh reduce what taxpayers have to spend to service future debt and then just to, just to follow up that i am interested in is I think conservatives perhaps have a selective uh, outrage in terms of the national debt at, at the national level that um, when, when a Democrat's in office spending and, and debt, debt and deficits going up, you know, it's like a major crisis that you need to address, but that's been going up, you know, under uh, the last two Republican presidents is that uh, it, and it seems like, some people think that's not even a problem at all. Some people are seem seem like it's a very dire situation. What is the the reality as you see it? As uh, is it how big of a problem is the fact that we have a a huge national debt that is increasing year by year? I I would say that the hypocrisy is by Republicans, not necessarily conservatives. It's it's instances of where Republicans don't act <laughs> conservative. <laughs> Um, at present, it's not a problem because investors are apparently willing to uh, let the federal government borrow unlimited sums of money at very low interest rates. My assumption and the assumption of many others is that one day that will change. And we are currently um, not just borrowing to build stuff, which unlike some conservatives, I think is okay. I don't think that the right level of national debt um, should be zero. I think that we should borrow to build infrastructure. But we're borrowing to pay 
um, for operating costs to keep keep the lights on and make transfer payments. Uh, and that cannot be long-term sustainable, uh, and it's getting worse, not better. So uh, I have sort of despaired uh, that the political system will respond to that until it becomes a crisis. Um, when those investors say, guess what, we're not going to loan you unlimited sums of money at 2 to 4% interest, we're going to charge you 6 to 8% interest. The effect that will have on the federal budget is going to be massive uh, at a time that we're going to have to start borrowing more to pay Social Security obligations. The um, IOUs in the Social Security Trust Fund are due to run out by um, 2033 or so. Um, you also have the same thing happening with the Hospitalization Trust Fund under Medicare. So we've, we've got these major senior retirement benefits uh, whose finances are coming unraveled uh, and we should be reducing our debt so we've got more capacity if we choose to borrow to handle that than we are. But if we get a jump in the cost of, of interest rates combined with the need to start borrowing even more heavily uh, for, for these retirement programs, um, that could be a very, very serious crisis. But having written that, uh, for all 20 years I've been with the Arizona Republic, I have despaired of it being addressed by the political class until right. there's no choice. Right. Well, thanks for listening to the Political Notebook podcast. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, or any other podcasting app. Uh, if you want to support the podcast, you can share share with a friend, someone that you think is, is interested. Uh, you can, you can contact, uh, me on Twitter at Billy Rob 33. There's also a Facebook page, uh, for the political notebook. If you just search the political notebook or look at political, uh, notebook, if you care to participate in comments or discussions, uh, you're welcome to follow the Facebook page. Thanks. <laughs>